0: This podcast is brought to you by the Immigration Law Series by Imond Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal
1: publisher. Welcome home, everybody. This is a podcast about Canadian immigration law. If you're an immigration practitioner or a student looking to get into this area, or maybe just someone looking to learn about immigration, this is a podcast for and about you. Chantal and I will tell you what you need to know, bring you expert guests to share their wisdom, and we're all gonna have a lot of fun doing it. So sit back, enjoy, and welcome home. And now, Chantal is going to do some interpretive dance.
0: Woo, check me out, check out these dance moves. Look at this one. Can you see me? Can you see me now? What about now?
1: IRCC and CBSA are using technology to monitor files, allow files to be submitted for processing, all the way through to AI making preliminary decisions. Today's guest, Mario Bellissimo of Bellissimo Law Group, is going to provide us with some insight and practical tips on how to maneuver through this technical minefield. Mario, maybe you could
0: start by just telling our audience a little bit about yourself and your practice.
2: Yeah, so I've been in practice for about 26 years now, and we focus on immigration and admissibility uh, and litigation. Um, So basically, some uh, refer to us as the oncologists of immigration law. Uh, And in the last, uh, I would say, the last three, four years, uh, increasing interest in the technological expansion that we see at IRCC and other stakeholders.
0: What is it that has triggered or sparked your interest in this technology aspect?
2: Well, I think I noticed in the last few years that, you know, there's been this pressure for mass processing, right, as the backlog gets larger And so what does that mean for individualized assessments? And that's always been a passion of mine way back in the days of medical inadmissibility work when they used to make generic assessments based on someone's health or or social service demand rather than what they might really use if they immigrate to Canada. And that was in the Hillowitz case way back in 2005. So I've always been interested in individualized assessments. And I noticed technology began to encroach on that individualized assessment more went behind the curtain more became difficult to understand and to relate to and so that kind of begun began an exploration for me for the last few years that i think has been really really fascinating and uh continues to evolve each day
0: what what are some of the key points that you've discovered as you've as you've delved into this area
2: well, the first thing I discovered was there's not much legislation in the area. So you can basically drive a truck through the, the, the legislation in terms of what is specifically outlined. And that IRCC, for one, began to quietly investigate artificial intelligence uses and other technology uses since 2013. And they finally rolled out what is called, you know, narrow AI triaging in 2018 in India, then 2019 in China. And most recently, we've seen a global rollout. But I think that uh, what we've seen is not a real transparent manifestation of the technology. It's been piecemeal assessments. The law is way behind in legislating what this means. And, and, And frankly, and not to overstate this, it's going to transform Uh, the delivery of immigration law and policy uh, more in the next five to ten years than we've had since Confederation. And I know that sounds like a bold statement, but it's reality.
1: And how do you think it's going to transform it? Because that's quite the statement, Mario.
2: So the way we're going to Uh, process immigration applications is going to dramatically change. Now, keeping in mind that we hear all all of these incredible uses in the private sector, you know, chat GPT, Dolly, you know, deceased actors uh, are all of a sudden back uh, being used in presentations, performers. Um, So keeping in mind that the public rollout of technology is always behind private uses, But even keeping that in mind, because this doesn't jump in a linear way, it can jump in leaps in terms of technology, who will be assessing an application and what will be assessing an application is already changing. So you're already being triaged, depending on officer rules, which are not known to even officers. We can delve into that in a moment. And I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. Um, And so who will be looking at these applications, why they'll be looking at the applications will be dictated by technology. The speed at which they'll be looking at these applications will dramatically change. Categories will likely dramatically change. Um, Where we process applications will dramatically change. And the reasons that we receive and our ability to challenge these decisions will also dramatically change. And at the end of it all, of course, our role as lawyers and representatives will dramatically change.
0: Yeah, I I was thinking as you were speaking that we've spent decades of professional development honing our skills on how to convince an individual human officer of the merits of the case and the human element is really decreasing in processing, from what I hear you
2: saying. It's a great comment. Um, so we already know in places like uh, Estonia and China, we have robot judges. Um, we have in places like Brazil, uh, AI is being used, a program a platform called Victor in the federal Supreme Court. So it's it's everywhere already in law. And in terms of what it's going to mean so first i want to say i'm pro ai i think the the transformative changes are exciting they're fantastic it's just how we position this and to your point Chantal, it is critical that the humanized decision making the discretionary decision making is not clouded or or cloaked um, in a shroud of technology where potential indicators are not apparent to either the representative or the applicant. And let me give you a a very simple example. There's a decision um, at the federal court level called KISS, K-I-S-S. It's 2022 FC 233. Um, And this wasn't a a case about artificial intelligence, but it was a case about what indicators were being used in electronic travel authorizations to, to grant or deny them. And the counsel in that case, lawyer in that case, was very creative and asked for a subpoena uh, because they didn't present an officer and uh, couldn't get behind why uh, his client was refused. Anyway, they ended up disclosing in that case that one of the negative indicators was uh, refugee claims in the past by family members. And so you look then to say, okay, well, where is that grounded in law? Mm -hmm. as an indicator of why someone should receive an ETA. Could it be a reasonable consideration? I'm not sure, right? So you already see there behind the curtain, there's a negative indicator. So I often use the example now on study permits that are being triaged by uh, artificial intelligence or intelligence automation, if you want to use that term. That's one that's not often used. Um, That what if they put a 30-year-old limit on um, who gets triaged first. So meaning, right now if we look at the TRV model, temporary resident visa model, 34% went directly to an assessment by an officer, they were deemed not complex, automatically, usually proved within a few days. 66% 66% were streamed to medium complexity and full complexity, right? So those 66 are are drawn And what does that mean for processing time? What does that mean for first in, first out principles? All kinds of questions there. But what if one of the uh, indicators or discriminators is that if anyone applies for a study permit over the age of 30, you're automatically triaged to medium complexity or... A serious complexity because of your age. Now, that would seemingly be a violation. Um, some people say, well, hang on, you know, in Express Entry, we've been using age discriminators for a while, so would it be? But these are the types of things that if law, if if these indicators and how the technology is being used, is not grounded in, in law, but it's grounded in uh, ministerial instructions or policy, and they're not fully rolled out, that dramatically changes the relation the relatable plane that we're working on as applicants and representatives because we don't know um, where to go and they say, well, you know we can't reveal this stuff because then you can game the system. And you know, in, in my meetings with IRCC or in my testimony um, or any chance I get to speak about this, I always say, well, hang on, if this is about triaging, what's the big secret? Um, we're just triaging, right? We're not making decisions. Or are we making proxy decisions? And I think we're making proxy decisions. And uh, again, to your point, Chantel, what that means for lawyers doesn't mean our, our, our role changes. It actually becomes more important in the future. It just becomes different and more challenging.
0: Yeah, I was, I was going to say as well that, I, I mean, at some level, if I'm an officer um, and if I know that all of the easy cases are being triaged out by some s- computer system, then I'm going to assume that the stuff that comes in front of me, there's something wrong with it. So would that predispose me to refusing a higher rate than I normally would if this
1: hadn't happened? As an unconscious bias even, right?
2: Absolutely. Microaggressions, and if you look at the uh, Polora report, uh, Uh, from a few years ago, even inside IRCC, they said, look, we're worried about bias that we see in our workplace being embedded in automation. So this is not just uh, us on the private side saying it, there's been an admission from IRCC that this is an issue. And look, um, you know, there's a, a lot of examples, eye border control, a lie detector test at the border in Europe, um atlas a citizenship revocation ai tool in the united states uh even in our supreme court of canada case here Ewart, uh, a metis man that was you know being assessed for recidivism, was a tool was being used ai tool was being used that had no metis uh input or uh background in that and it was deemed for different reasons not to be fair so um, we already have domestic and international examples. We already have movement from a lot of countries to legislate in this area. And um, that's where, in, in my uh, calls to the government now, to IRCC, you need to legislate. You may have heard of Bill C-27, uh, which is a, an act now that is trying to, um, on, on the private side, um, legislate. Uh, artificial intelligence uses uh, the digital charter implementation act is is a, one of the uh, new creations but um, I ask you both this and you're, you're both accomplished lawyers could you imagine the charter of rights and freedoms only applying to private entities can you imagine what the difference of our societal and legal evolution would have been um, if that was the way it, it applied so to me um, and I'm hopeful to get uh, before the committee on this, it's, it's not SIM, it's a different a technology committee, um, to get before them and say, look, by suggesting government does not need to be covered by this legislation is an absolute misstep. We need in Canada the equivalent of the Charter of Rights and Freedom. I call it the, the, the Canadian Char- Charter of Digital Rights and Freedoms because these digital rights are akin to physical rights and we have to start looking at it this way and this is where I'm talking about the transformative change in the evolution of why things are going to dramatically uh, alter our reality moving forward we need to start thinking uh, of a coexistence of an intelligence that exists outside of our physicality but is real and it impacts our decisions each day so you know, real fascinating developments, but a need for real, real legislation. Law needs to catch up. You know, it needs to uh, to to bridge the growing divide between ethical and legal.
1: I think you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, with AI, the biggest fear is that the algorithms are made by human beings. And human beings have unconscious bias and flaws in a certain way I have a certain way of viewing the world based on my upbringing etc you have yours etc and i think that the the issue when it comes to ai or concern is that people want to be sure that there's transparency attached when using it if the government i think if ircc and cbsa can say yes we are using it this is how and what we're looking at because there's always mistakes right? It is still, you know, computer development. It doesn't mean it's right, as we all know. Um, And I think that we need to keep that in mind. And the transparency piece has to be there for this really to be, I think, able to function in the area of immigration and and border services.
0: And I I think that um, there's also a danger of being naive where people could say, well, um, you know, because it's electronic uh, and because it has no emotion, therefore it must be objective. But it's only as good as the data that's inputted into it and the people that inputted that data and decided what what the
2: indicators were, right? Absolutely. And, I, I, and
1: what data? I, hmm? What data to feed yeah, it, Yeah, exactly, right? yeah.
2: Yeah, I, I sometimes, when I'm speaking about AI, uh, you know, to sh- the shock of some, I, I say some of these uh uh, platforms when they're rolled out, are 40-year-old racist, misogynistic, uh, and angry individuals that will promote hate speech. And that's not an overstatement because we've we've seen that. Um, you know, you, you ever wonder why um, the voices of Alexa and Siri are female? Well, it may be in part because um, only 27% of AI programs are female. So we are already replicating some gender biases in how we're rolling out this technology and in teaching new generations. Well, you know, this is, this is a role. This is a female role. It's not a male role. So um, there, there's five things that I call for and I'll, I'll just say them very briefly. So the first I already mentioned was the need for a Canadian charter of digital rights and freedoms. So that was one. The next one in this is the legislative right to equal treatment data security and transparency because preserving this data selling this data how you use this data is huge as well and remember immigration is collecting global data here probably one of the most rich you know data is the new gold right it's the new gold rush so it's incredible what what ircc is collecting uh, the other one is legislative notice of, of uh, a legislative protection of notice, explicability, and AI user control. What does that mean? Well, if we can't understand how it's being used, like you look at the algorithmic impact assessments on the IRC w- C website, I mean, I study this f- frequently and I can have a tough time making heads or tails of it. It's, it's opaque, I, I don't get it. So it might just be me and, and brighter people look at it and get it. I don't. So I don't think that that's plain language um and then you look at um the issue of ai user control ultimately you have to have the ability for a human override okay um and 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 that's critical because we see it you know for example there's been some in a non-immigration context but people looking for jobs in the united states or looking for housing in the united states They keep getting screened out by the same AI technology that all of these individuals are starting to use. They keep hitting the same negative indicators, out they go. Uh, The other thing is, and this goes to the point we were just discussing, legal training for AI should be enacted in terms of quotas and and who represents. Uh, Catherine made a very important point about who is programming, and that is bang on. You need to have a reflection of society providing input. Uh, You know, you you look at the word history, right? People story, history. It's already uh, gender bias, just the word. So the many lenses that come to this, it's critical now because we are teaching AI. And this is something that is going to now run for decades. And so if you start on an improper foundation, it's going to perpetuate the biases we already see. And the last one is... Legislative external audits, external consultation, and civil and criminal liability. Again, we need to understand that damage to our digital rights can be as powerful or more damaging in some cases to our physical integrity. And I know that's a concept we don't hear a lot about, but it's one we should be talking about more because we know many people have lost their lives from cyberbullying and other things. Uh, and and we also know, for example. Uh, there was the case of the of the poor dad that took pictures of his of his little child for the pediatrician and sent him over and was flagged on Google as a pedophile um so this is real this is happening it's not you know dog whistles
1: it's interesting cuz i tell clients Uh, Coming in from Europe, if you have any photos of your kids, you know, the naked in the backyard or bathtub, playing in the water or the pool, it might seem normal, but take it off of your phone. Mm -hmm. Just don't even travel with that on there because of this day and age. And, you know, uh, the avatar system at the Canadian border, which is another one that uses pretty advanced technology and that system, I haven't read much since 2017 about it. And I did an A-tip recently. Uh, Well, when I say recently, I'm still waiting for the results. It's year two of me (laughs) waiting for the results of that A-tip. Sounds right. On the avatar system. Um, When they're answering questions, uh, because it's an advanced lying machine, basically, it can tell if you curl your toes up in your shoes. That's how, and it has, um, you know, mid 80s, mid to high 80s uh, approval rate. Like it's actually correct that amount of time. And the more information that it's fed, optimistically, the more accurate it's going to get. But obviously, I I come across the border all the time. I have family in the US and in Europe. My concern is, if I have one, one hiccup, let's say I forgot to claim that beautiful sweater at the border that I bought abroad and I have that one hiccup is that system now going to constantly red flag me is it constantly going to trigger me is it what are those parameters that that make it not okay and then more than that when we talk in the context of immigration um I think we are advocates sometimes just because my my sibling you know, went and claimed refugee status, maybe unsuccessfully, doesn't mean I'm going to. So why am I paying the penalty for family members? Why am I, you know, I have that steady job, et cetera, that I'm going to go back to? I could be the perfect applicant, but there could be things outside of my control, or maybe the AI gets it wrong because my name is so similar to someone else's. That I'm now flagged. I think those are are the things where people say, "Hey, wait a minute," and the government says, "Well, those are the outliers. It's not really going to happen that much, and we'll deal with those." But I don't I don't think that's really true. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, it's not a satisfactory explanation if you fall in that couple of percent margin of error, right?
1: Well, and they're the IRCC and CBSA aren't responsive, Mm -hmm. right? They don't address our issues when when you know lawyers and consultants say here here's the problems we have with the process in the current systems i mean no offense the government's technology currently you know <laughs> submitting applications through various portals is not ideal and now they they're going to convince us that they can make you know preliminary decisions that won't persuade an officer one way or the other just simply bring it to the officer's attention well you know, as Chantel mentioned, you're bringing it to my attention because there's a reason. Right.
0: Yeah. I, am going to Florida tomorrow and the key takeaway for me is that I shouldn't wiggle my toes. Correct. <laughs> so if right. that's all I got out of this session today, that it was worth
1: <laughs> You might have a full body search. Who knows? Be
0: careful. I'm game. <laughs> Mario, well,
2: sorry, go ahead. Well, this is, uh, this is why though I'm excited about AI despite all of these, uh, tales and concerns is because right now uh, the flip side is humans aren't doing a great job at IRCC uh, in terms of and I don't mean to cast aspersions and I'm not there's a many hardworking and, and very highly functional individuals but we have backlogs we have biases we have non-transparency um, so here's where and the under-trained in some case so here's the chance where the technology if properly legislated properly utilized can be transformative. And let's, let's use a couple of examples. Number one, the technology, and, th- and this is not even AI, it's already there, uh, gives real-time access to GCMS notes, and you can see peek behind the curtain what's happening. Critical touch points on files. ATIPS go down by 80%, right? Uh, now you're only doing deep dives, which tips was originally meant to be. Uh, we begin to move towards plain language, on uh, on applications we're starting to see some cases like he misrepresentation case which finally after years of pleading it a judge finally recognizes well those questions are not that clear there's like mm-hmm. eight questions wrapped up into one so unless you're wordsmiths and your lawyers they are not that easy to figure out so great move there um, the technology is here, right? So we're we're amassing, all, we're amassing all this data. So we don't need to start asking about US refusals because we already have that information. So forms should change. That should lead to product efficiency, deliverable efficiency. Um, we now will have applications, if transparently put out, you know what the indicators are, what the screening is. Some of it will have to be challenged in court. Uh, we don't think that's reasonable. You know, let the jurisprudential evolution occur over the next five to ten years. But then you land in a place where people know what they're applying for, lightning fast um outcomes um that are based in law and not in 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 bias, right? We're not that far removed, you know. As I always say, we're only fifty years away from acts that were outwardly ra- overtly racist, um and discriminatory. So it's happened in the past, it can happen again. We can't You know, drop our guard on these things. But that's where it's amazing, right? So you deal with issues like the facial recognition issues, the data mining issues, accent detection, all the stuff that they're now using. Now we're going into CBSA. they, They, you know, they're analyzing you based on your enhanced license two miles before you even reach Uh, a port of entry, so that examination, like how we understand examinations has to be revisited and redefined because examinations now are happening all the time and not just before you're an officer, the legislation has to catch up. But these can be really good things. Yes, norms, values and powers in society can be hidden in algorithms, but they don't have to be hidden. So if we're looking at the best international examples, New Zealand uh, as one, we need to borrow from that, the European Commission. I know right now there's work being done for a treaty between Europe and Canada on the use of AI. So um, IRCC has to recognize that the days of not, you know, there's obviously security concerns, I get it, but the days of not being accessible or transparent, the system is, you know, that, what did we say? 10 years ago it was broken, so what is it now, shattered? I mean, so we're, we're going down a further path, all the imagery aside, um, as to a new way of doing things. We have to be bold, we have to be uh, exciting. So can you imagine, and, I, and I'll stop there, new caps and cues in, in, in different programs that are AI coordinated. You go online, you know exactly how many spots are left. Um, you f- you go in, you're clicked off, the whole system is transparent. Those are the changes we're going to see. It's going to be fantastic. And the days, we'll be telling you know, people years from now, hopefully, oh, in the old days, this is how it used to be. Really? How did you even survive? How did you get <laughs> an application out? Um, so that's what I see in the next 10 years, and and I think it'll be for the better. Big cautionary note, though, if we continue to creep and cloak behind the curtain, as we're seeing then, we're just going to hammer this all out in court. It'll delay a good delivery by potentially decades, and that would be very disappointing.
1: I agree, and I think the 24-7 availability of AI to you know, process things or move things along is fantastic. They don't have to take a lunch break. They don't. They <laughs> definitely don't. Um, Go out for a smoke. <laughs> I, <laughs> coffee break, donut break. Um I think that is definitely a benefit. I think that there are a lot of benefits to using technology in general. I would love to see TRP applications just go online right now. That's kind of my dream uh, is to get though. I don't know why we don't have that. Like, yeah. Why on that's earth crazy. are temporary resident permit applications not online? Don't get it, but... Um, and here we are talking about the government and AI, because they don't I,
0: want you to ask for one. <laughs> they,
1: maybe. Um, but I, and I think it's really uh, I think often, when people mention AI because they don't know much about it, they're very scared, right? There's a lot of fear, and fear, fear drives negativity often. I think it can be very positive, but as as we've noticed, the government has to specifically address, how they're going to do this, and be transparent.
0: I think transparency in general is not their strong suit, is it? Um, there are a lot of things that are a black box. And the, the problem is that e- even if there's nothing nefarious going on, when you don't explain to people what you're doing, it's going to make people inherently suspicious and not trusting of the system, which which, it, which is not a good look, and that's not where we want to go. Like We want people to be able to trust our system, to put their faith in it, um, and it seems like it's almost going in the opposite direction. I, I don't understand where that um, culture of secrecy comes from.
2: Well, I, I think the you know the belief is that um, internally they can guide the path, right? And and they're getting better with external consultation. But I always say, you know, consultation is measured in many ways: is it timely? Is it meaningful? Is it at the end of the day? You know, you look at all the. The issues surrounding Chinook, as as this notes, you know, talking about technology and IRCC. So this notes generator. So before an officer, you're 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 putting, um, you know, 50 or 60 reasons for refusals in notes there, <laughs> and nothing in terms of approving, as far as the modules I've analyzed. So that predisposes you to finding reasons to refuse and then you get into these reasons that are becoming devoid of any meaning right they don't reference the person they don't reference the country they don't reference any of the evidence everyone goes to court wins the study permit challenge wow you're a fantastic lawyer you won in federal court again what a waste of time and money absolute Mm -hmm. by all means and this is an example of um you know, the bureaucracy. And, and again, Chantal, to your point about why do they do this? Well, now we actually have the Deloitte report from 2019 that says there's got to be behavioral and organi- organizational changes at IRCC. It's got to be an output efficiency driven model. It's not working. So when you become embedded in your own world and you don't have individuals around you say, well, hang on, I've got a different idea or no, I don't agree with you. Uh, because they work for you. It's part of the same culture. You need that friction to create ingenuity. And that's where the, the consultation has to happen. If they remain insulated as they have for so long, you know, oh, most representatives um, cause more problems than help. Uh, you know, if it's a good applicant, you don't need a representative. Unless you start debunking these myths and start moving past these traditional obstacles, you um, AI is going to be inhibited. And AI can solve a lot of this, if, again, if it's, if it's leveraged in the proper way. But there has to be an organizational shift. You look at, I, I know I'm going back in time, but Australia in 2006 created a college of immigration. And I'm, I'm sure both of you have heard it. They sent all their officers back there to facilitation. Now, the Australian model worked for years. Now it's become too cumbersome and they're doing a massive review on it. Uh, this year, I think it actually just came out last month what they might be doing, um, but you know we need that journey. We need to repopulate, refresh. You know, don't want another name. Let's just go back to Citizenship and Immigration Canada. <laughs> There's not another name, uh, so we can all change our everything. But um, but I think if we go there, um, you know, because we're a long way from what is called AGI, like artificial general intelligence, that's where we're talking about human level performance. We're not there yet, this is narrow AI. We're using it to make our lives easier in our offices and in our work. DOJ and IRCC right now, um, you may have both heard, have a joint initiative for a research tool on, on decisions and the probability of success if you go to court. They hope to roll that out and make it publicly available to us as lawyers as well. Um. So that's the type of collaborative approach you want. Let's all be using the same technology as best we can. Let's make it affordable. Let's all be on a relatable plane of information. Amazing things can follow.
1: I think it's important to note as well that that technology already exists. So they, what they really need to do is to look to those professionals who've already created it and implemented it. So there is technology that has analyzed court rulings in Ontario and Canada and basically says, "Oh, this is the judge you're going to be appearing in front of, and you're going to be arguing a motion on X." Well, these are the words that you should use more often in your submissions, and this is your likelihood of success in that instance. Um, that technology is already there; it exists. the The data there is is you know quite. Quite significant. There's a lot of court applications. They're all public. I think the the difference is when I submit my client's application, it's private. I I want to be sure that the information is secure first of all against cyber attacks. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also want would want to know how are they going to use the data because a lot of the immigration programs are based off of all the data collection etc that they're getting now. So are we really, is IRCC and CBSA making it known how their data will be used? Are they getting sign-off from individuals on that? And I'm gonna go with uh, no. I don't think it's really been made clear how, how that's being used. I, I know there's that you know, Canada-US information sharing program and it goes beyond that. But I think at the end of the day, individuals are gonna come to us to say, okay, when I file my application, how far does this go? Are they going to, you know, is the AI going to take a look at my Instagram or my Twitter account? How, how far is this going to go? And, you know, are, are you going to use it against me?
0: I hope not. You'll never be able to go anywhere again. Never.
1: <laughs> well, my, my, my Instagram and Twitter is all basically dogs, just adorable dog photos, dogs, dogs, dogs.
2: Well, Catherine you make an excellent point um, you know there's the technology in the States as far uh, as really surpassed what we're doing on the government side here there's the uh, the one case I don't know if you heard about it the uh, they're so good that they know what release rates are depending on uh, the judge before lunch or after lunch. So there was one judge that apparently was hangry all the time and they all tried to scramble not to be in that 11 o'clock slot because we're likely to detain. Um, So there's that. But the, the point in terms of data, we also have to think about now the back end in the courts, right? So there's this mass move to digitize all the information. Uh, that information is now going to become available. And I think in terms of Instagram, Facebook, it's all of the above. It's all going to be fair game unless legislation says otherwise. Um, I think the real fear of what I call digital ghost representatives, uh, you know, we thought we had problems with ghosts before. Can you imagine now what you can create? Um, Is immigration going to move to combat things like chat GPT, which... Can generate. I mean, it's not a. People are all excited, about a lot of privacy issues there as well. Uh, I mean, it's already been proven. It doesn't have uh, citations. It does not uh, spew out correct things, but it's still pretty convincing. So now, if if applicants start using that to generate narratives, refugee claim, why did I didn't misrep Mm. or my work history, is immigration going to employ things like chat? Uh, or sorry, GPT-0, which detects the use of AI in submissions. Again, these are things that need to be apparent. We need to know them because right now, clients can already start using this. Uh, And before it's a big problem, the law, the transparency, we have to catch up.
1: And we we try and make immigration accessible to people. So is there really anything wrong with them using chat GPT to help with a submission letter,
0: right? No. We, we experimented a little bit with it. Um, we created an account at the firm and we just like tried a few things just to see what the scope of what it could do. And I mean, it, it's fairly limited. But uh, one of the tests we did was we needed to ask for an extension of time uh, for, for something with IRCC. And uh, we, we said, you know, draft an email to Immigration Canada asking for additional time to submit a police clearance and it came like within two seconds, it came out with like it was really, really good. But in the middle of the um, in the middle of the email text, it just made up a reason. <laughs> <laughs> it just like invented a completely fabricated reason. So like you have to be cautious, of course. but I could see like a lot of time efficiencies that it could create. Uh, you know, like it would have taken us maybe 10 minutes to draft that email and, you know, it can do it in a nanosecond and you just have to go back and read it and double check and input a couple of extra things like it could could be really useful.
2: Yeah, it, it could be. And so the question is, is it's a good question uh, in terms of Catherine, your question. Yes. Yeah, should there be limitations? Well, it'll really depend on does it produce accurate information or can it be used for abuse and creation of content so if you get generative al- algorithms that can start to really create you know deep fake narratives and, and populate the web uh, which is already happening this is something we're going to have to be dealing with you know when you're you're researching something now be it an organization be it an individual what's real what is not you know, between physical and digital reality, the the worlds are blending very quickly, makes our job more difficult. Could you imagine a defense? Oh, I'm sorry, that reason was in there for the extension. That was the AI, that wasn't me. So I didn't misrepresent. You know, we're getting into a whole different world. Um, So yeah, again, this is why there should be conversations like we're having today, um, happening with stakeholders across Canada. And remember, they rolled all this out without much consultation. Did you know that... IRCC was going to start using AI? Not really. So yeah, it that was, was a bit the, of a surprise. Yeah. So that was the first mistake in my view.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, right now, all I really want is for IRCC to attach the web form submissions I do to the file. <laughs> so We don't want a lot. Our ask is small. <laughs> that's my big ask right now. Setting the bar low. <laughs> Never mind artificial intelligence consultations, but yes
0: yeah uh, well it doesn't engender much confidence does it i mean when silly little things like that can't even be done properly like how much confidence do we have in these huge big picture projects and changes that they want to make right i mean i i don't know i just it doesn't make my gut feel right
2: yeah and how much is not happening with manual oversight i believe there's more happening than they know uh, i mean i don't know about in your offices but i'm getting requests for Uh, employment letters for a seven-year-old applicant. So I can't imagine someone having looked at that and said, oh, that's a reasonable request, Um, right? So what's happening? I just think there's too much behind the curtain. And the other thing is, which I I mean is is a good place to end is that um, human feedback is way too slow once you unleash AI. You cannot, you, you actually have to take it offline you know it's it'll go in areas and directions that and you could just see in that extension letter that you don't anticipate and that's the same thing so imagine when you unleash it on triaging application eventually assessing applications for completeness and eligibility and all the rest what is it going to infuse in there what are we going to find out 6 months a year later why all these people were refused because it went off in its own direction and those are the dangers of AI that are still very real, technology will eventually catch up and eliminate that. But for right now, we need those safeguards in place.
0: Yeah, that, that is a good place probably to conclude. And, and I, I want to also say that I really appreciate your insight in, in you know saying that you know just because there are concerns, it's no reason to throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is actually a really exciting time. Uh, these are really exciting ideas and like the potential for it is incredible. Uh, but proceed with caution. It's not, uh, you know, it's not the be-all and end-all, and we can't just trust it blindly. So I I think, like, I don't know if that was the message that, um, you know, would come out of this for the audience, I I think that would be a very good one. Um, You know, there's good and bad in everything, so proceed with caution, but, you know, overall it's a positive message.
1: You know what the message I think is? It's going to train me to use AI to see what the AI keywords are
0: (laughs) in the immigration process. And not to wiggle your toes when you go through customs. And do
1: not wiggle your toes.
0: And we're changing it to Immigration Robots and Citizenship Canada.
1: Exactly. Is that
0: a good idea? Robots. Mario, listen, we we so much appreciate your time today. This has been like a highly informative uh, session. I learned a lot. So I know that our listeners are going to find it really interesting as well. Uh, We're also as a profession, very grateful that there are people like you at the forefront of this that are keeping an eye on it and, you know, keeping the powers that be honest and accountable when it comes to this kind of stuff. So thank you for that.
2: Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak about it. Uh, as I said, it's, it's my passion right now, and I'm really excited about the eventual possibilities. Thanks, Mario. Thank you.
1: Need a concise guide on all practical and procedural aspects of Canadian immigration law? How about a contemporary resource that examines the fundamental avenues, requirements, and remedies for immigration? Have you heard about Iman's immigration law series? Well, duh, I think so, because we're the general editors. Yeah, it's true. Catherine Swicky and Chantal Delage are the general editors. And Emon's practical and contemporary series offers you a clear, concise, balanced guide on the most challenging areas of immigration practice. Literally the only time in our lives that anyone has called us balanced. <laughs> Learn more about Emon's immigration law series at emon.ca forward slash ILS. Things I wish I did
0: not do. This is an ongoing problem um, where you end up in a relationship with a client where the scope of your retainer has been exceeded and you're now doing way, way too much work for way, way too little money. Um, And I, I think that this is something not only that you know, I wish I didn't do when I was a junior lawyer. I wish I didn't still make that mistake sometimes now. And I I think that the takeaway here is that systems, you know, you need to develop a system of having a very clear retainer agreement and very clear policies in place that number one, I do not start working until you've signed the agreement and paid an initial deposit, and you need to make sure the initial deposit is enough to keep you going for a while before you have to ask them for more money. Um, the second issue is don't make exceptions to that um, because it's very easy to get pe- that people will talk you out of it or you know give you a story or whatever, and you know some of them can be pretty compelling, but I think you have to really stick to your guns because you get into trouble when you start to go. Outside the scope, or start to, you know, you start working on it before they've paid you, and then they run into a financial problem. Now you're kind of committed. Um, and and I, I would say the other tip here would be very clearly outline the scope of what you were doing and not doing for this client, not only verbally, but in your retainer agreement. So all these extra little questions or whatever, you can go back and point to something in your retainer agreement and say, this is outside the scope of what I quoted you for. I'd be happy to advise you on that, but please be advised that additional charges will apply.
1: Absolutely. And that retainer agreement is a contract. So the moment you start to vary those terms and conditions, even though the client agrees with it, now you're you're you don't have a leg to stand on if you need to with respect to that retainer agreement because now you're going over to emails, et cetera. So it can be, as you mentioned, quite risky. I also think that often we can underestimate how long it takes to complete a task. I mm-hmm. think that this is really something that happens to a lot of immigration lawyers because, you know, we work hard for money. (laughs) Um, And and you want to be sure that you get paid for what you've done. So I like to make sure that there's that out in the retainer agreement, right? That the average, and sometimes I'm starting now to put ranges uh, for various uh, immigration categories into the retainer. Because things can get complicated very fast, or um, I also have a provision that says if it starts to get you know more complicated or beyond the scope of you know what we, the general application process, then um, because some way sometimes you don't find out till halfway through. Oh, there was that little conviction I forgot about. Right. Well, now this work permit isn't going to cost you know. X number of dollars, it's going to cost triple that. Yeah.
0: I've I've moved away from flat fee billing largely. Um, A lot of what I do now is billed hourly. And I know that's not typical of our field, but on on the occasions where I do quote a flat fee, I put an hourly cap on it every time. Because I know, you know, based on metrics that I've been keeping for years, the average number of hours that it takes to complete a certain type of application. So instead of just saying, if it takes more than average, because then you're gonna be in in an argument with the client about what does average mean, I actually put a number on it. I say, and and I figure it out like according to the flat fee, according to what I wanna make per hour, you know, so, You know, if it's this amount, then this is the number of hours that are included in the agreement. And then I keep track of those hours. And if it starts to be exceeded, I have a very objective measure to go back to them and say, I told you I'd do 20 hours. Okay, fine. I did 22, 23. I wasn't going to say anything over a couple of hours, but now we're at 25. And you pull the trigger on the escape clause in your retainer agreement.
1: I think that's a great idea to have that limit. We uh, docket our time throughout our day so we can be able to tell what the average is for various types of files. but I think having that limit is fantastic idea.
0: yeah and and not to develop a pattern with clients like some people if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile, right So you start to you know you say yes to this, you start to blur the boundaries here, you start to do a little extra here. Um, and then all of a sudden it becomes an expectation on their part that you're going to keep doing that because you've done it before and it gets harder to say no over the course of time. So you have to be very boundaried about that. And I know like, you know, for people like us, we're very empathetic and we love to help people. And so our nature is to give more, but I I think sometimes you just have to really be firm because, you know, next thing you know, you're ending up doing all these extra hours and you could be spending them on other client files and now you're kind of trapped in a mess. So I I wish I knew that earlier in my
1: career. Learning how to say no earlier. Yes. Things I wish I did not do. Are you an immigration practitioner working on cases involving temporary residency and work permit applications? Hmm. Stay prepared with Iman Publishing's temporary entry into the Canadian labour market by Stephen Green, Alexandra Cole, Christina Grita, and Peter Salerno. This handbook will guide you through the avenues and implication of a foreign worker's temporary entry into Canada from applications for work authorizations all the way through to employer compliance and inspections. Get your copy today, visit emun.ca forward slash TECLM and enter promo code T E C 10 for 10% off. Do it now. We wanted to say thank you Mario Bellissimo for joining us today and providing us with all that helpful information. It was Bellissimo.
0: The Welcome Home podcast is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network. Directed and published by Dana Haas and marketing by Katrina Harley. For our listeners, Emond is offering 10% off titles in the Immigration Law series. Just visit emonca forward slash welcomehomeimmigration and enter code welcomehome at checkout. And we want to hear from you. Please email us with your questions or topics at welcomehome at or leave us a voicemail at phone number 416-975-3925 extension 227. My name is Danon Hawes and I'm the senior publisher at Emon Publishing. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Welcome Home Podcast. We at Emon Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class immigration law content, including our Immigration Law series edited by Chantelle Deloge and Catherine Sawicki, our best-selling treatise, Canadian Immigration and Refugee Law, A Practitioner's Handbook, Third Edition, new initiatives like the Welcome Home Podcast, as well as our EMOND exam prep ICCRC practice exams and a host of immigration law casebooks and textbooks for law school, university, and college students. EMOND is also the proud provider of most of the required resources for the Queen's immigration and citizenship law program for immigration consultants.